0: Our first reading is in Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 21. My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbour, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbour who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honour, but fools he holds up to shame.
1: James 5, um, <clears throat> 13 to 20, page 1269. Is any, any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone, unha- is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins.
2: Well, it's uh, good to be here tonight. Uh, Do keep the uh, passage that we are reading uh, Ruth read for us just a moment ago from James chapter 5 open we going to have a look at that and there's an outline uh, that you have put on the way in uh, that might be of, uh, yeah, hopefully that's of, of help to you as we go through this section. Now, the passage today, it's one of uh, the more difficult, I think, to uh, wrap our heads around uh, in, uh, in James. On the one hand, though, there's parts that seem quite straightforward. Uh, you know, pray when you're in trouble, uh, praise God when things are going well, Uh, When someone's sick, pray for them, but then kind of things seem to get a little bit more, more, or questions arise. Uh, Is this a blanket kind of promise of healing in sickness? Uh, The prayer of faith will make the sick person well, it seems to say in verse 15. If it is that, then I'm sure some of us would have appreciated it this winter with all of the flus and sickness that's been going around to just be able to do this thing and be well what's going on? Why do Christians still get sick or why do they not get healed straight away when we pray? Uh, if that's where the passage is leading us. Also in uh, the example of Elijah and the power of prayer more generally is this, Elijah prayed for it not to rain and it didn't rain and then he prayed for it to rain and it, and it did. You know, I'm sure anyone on tank water here would, would love to be able to do that At the moment, I was talking to someone and they're in a queue to get water um, at their place. Uh, The the person's got to take water to so many places. If that's where this passage is taking us, then why don't we do that? Why can't we just pray and make it rain? How does it fit with the other parts of Scripture? Are these general kind of catch-all phrases, statements, or is there a specific context that's going on here uh, that holds this together with the rest of James. Now, as I've prepared, I found it a little bit tricky to to understand what the passage is saying and think about that in our experience as well. And so I found some material helpful from Philip Jensen when he was the rector at uh, St. Matthias at Centennial Park. Uh, the material we've been using in our growth groups has got a similar background as well. Uh, hopefully, that's, you find that helpful as well. Uh, but as we come to the passage, there are a number of interpretations or views out there about how people have approached this, this passage, uh, and it's helpful to know a little bit about them. Uh, the, there's the Roman Catholic view, which um, there's seem to be various emphases over the years, uh, but it's uh, developed into the, sacra- the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, or extreme unction. Uh, it seems from what I've read largely to do with preparing someone for death if someone's very sick and they're going to die then uh, they call the priest and and the priest anoints them and prays over them Uh, kind of removing any residual sin it said um, uh, through that hasn't been removed through confession or repentance there's a strong emphasis on the anointing with the oil and although kind of healing is still spoken of as a possibility it's not really the focus of what uh, is going on in uh, that, that practice. Now, that seems to diverge from the passage here on a few points. It, it seems, James really seems here to be talking about healing, talking about people getting better. Um, there is, of course, uh, you know, going to be with Jesus, well, you know, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain and so there's kind of that sense. But but here, uh, James really seems to be talking about people getting better from sickness, Uh, rather than than dying and going to be with Jesus. Um, Also, in verse 16, it talks about confessing sins to one another and being healed. It's a a one-another kind of action rather than between you and, say, the priest or just in that kind of sense. So there's a few things there that don't seem to fit with this passage. Uh, Secondly, there's kind of... the maybe a, a, a charismatic view or a view that, that seems, sees this as a general promise of healing through prayer, a, prayer to, a promise to be claimed, to, to be taken hold of. Now maybe someone with the, with the gift of healing is the one through whom the healing occurs and, and as the, the promise is prayed for, named and, and prayed for, it's also often claimed at the time that, that healing has occurred. Now I haven't personally been uh, in a situation where that's been done uh, but only heard of of various outcomes. There's still kind of different elements that don't seem to line up with the passage or that still leave me questioning. Um, Why is it the elders here uh, that are called for in verse 14 uh, rather than say the one gifted with healing? Uh, or or the one who has the gift of healing. The elders in the the Scriptures aren't singled out as those who particularly have the gifts of healing. So just kind of thinking through that. Also, I suppose the biggest issue is just, what do we do with those who aren't healed? Is there something wrong with the, the pattern, the way that things are done or something? People are just not always healed when we pray for them. I heard about a young man uh, who'd been convinced by a number of people to come and to be prayed for and to be healed. Uh, he was someone who had suffered from epilepsy. Uh, he went along and, and and they prayed for him and and the healing was claimed and after that he, he they said, oh, you, you can go off your medication, you don't need your medication anymore and, and he went off his medication and not long after that he had a fit. And they kind of still continue to say, "No, you've you've been healed. Press on. Believe in it." And 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 then he had a number of other fits, and one where he fell down the stairs and and significantly injured himself. Rega- clearly, the healing hadn't happened, uh, regardless of the fact that it had been claimed. And there's not just the physical effects that might happen. Uh, so I suppose physical danger that that happens. Uh, that may happen. There's also spiritual implications if people aren't healed, in the sense of, well, is something wrong? As is, Does the person who's sick have enough faith? Uh, do they really believe? Maybe they're double-minded. Um, does the healer have enough faith? Is someone not righteous in the circumstance? Has, has the, the whole process been done in the right way with Jesus' name? And what is this prayer of faith? Is it something particularly special? This I think, seems to, to fall short in the end and not adequately deal with the wider passage and context, particularly Elijah as well. How does Elijah fit in and the bit at the end? Well, I think uh, that we can be helped by thinking about the context of the letter and looking at a few aspects in particular, how Elijah fits into this and I think that opens it up a little bit more for us. Um, so, over the course of the term, uh, we've been seeing in our series through James that those who James is writing to need to receive the word of God humbly. Uh, they need the wisdom from God because actually, that's, it's not um, all peaceful and that among the congregation, among the people that he's writing to, is it? They're, there's di- divisions among them. The haves and the have nots are fighting and not, uh, are divided. They're, they're showing favoritism and envy. They're proud and arrogant, oppressing one another. They're they're grumbling and slanderous, judging one another. They're following the wisdom of the world. They're double-minded and James warns them, you're not in a good place. Don't grumble, the judge is at the door, he says. And so what's James doing here in in the letter? What's he doing throughout the whole letter, really? Chapter 1, 21, he calls them, to repent again and again doesn't he turn away from your sins and humbly receive the word of god the the word implanted in you that's what he's doing he's calling them back to the truth again and again stop following the wisdom of the world and come back to the truth it's not james does have lots of practical uh, implications and, and commands and things in it. But it's not just a collection of proverbs, it's a timely word of rebuke and encouragement for a people who are divided and wandering from the truth. So with that in mind then, let's kind of come and uh, think about a, a look at some of the passage a little bit more closely. There's some questions that arise still as we as we come to this, what's the, what is the significance of the elders? Why is it the elders of the church that are called here? Um, further on, verse 15, the prayer offered in faith. One of the questions that comes to mind as I read that is, well, isn't all prayer offered in faith? You, you know, the, we don't, we don't come, you wouldn't come to the Lord unless you believed in Him, unless you trusted Him and, and so called upon Him. Is there, What's going on there? And also verse 15, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Well, we know that everyone's sinful, like we're all sinful and we all need forgiveness. And so what's really being spoken of here? How do we hold this together? Further on as well, verse 16, The confess to one another, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. And look at the end of the sentence there though, in order that you may be healed. You'd kind of expect it to say forgiven there, wouldn't you? When you confess your sins and pray for one another, you you forgive one another, you're forgiven. So how do we piece this together? Well, I think Elijah helps us uh, to unlock what's going on here. It could be easier to see the example of Elijah's prayer here as kind of a a raw power exercised at the hands of of the prayers of a a man like us. Um, But that's not... uh, but we need to hear the context of Elijah's ministry. Why was it that he prayed for no rain? Why was it that he prayed for rain again? It's not just that, you know, he had you know the grand final sort of soccer match coming up and he didn't want it to be rained out, so he's praying, oh, don't rain, don't rain. Or maybe, you know, not even that, oh, the carols, you know, it's coming up on the 9th of December, you know, we don't want it to rain for that day, so we'll pray for no rain then. It wasn't just kind of, praying for no rain for no reason but the context there was judgment on faithless Israel. Okay, we don't have time to go through the in 1 Kings now but you might like to write down 1 Kings chapter 16 through to 19 or so. Israel and her leaders had departed from the Lord this is, you know, one of the most famous kind of kings of Israel, the the northern ten tribes, is Ahab Um, and he married a woman called Jezebel Um, and, you know, things were bad before, even the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, well he'd uh, led the nation into idolatry, setting up idols to worship in the north at Dan and and just sort of a little bit north of Jerusalem in the south of the northern kingdom in Bethel. Um, Well, For Ahab, the sins of Jeroboam were were considered too small for him to follow in. He needed to really go out there and do it big time. And so he set up uh, the idols to Baal and there were 500 Baal prophets uh, and Jezebel kind of was all part of that. So then what was Elijah doing? What was his ministry at that time as a prophet of the Lord? Well, it was to bring God's judgment and call the people back. It, was to, it, it wasn't just that uh, praying for no rain was the whim of Elijah, but it was so that the rebellious nation might repent, might turn back. A ministry of reconciliation in that sense. So, if that is the context for Elijah's prayer, and And prayer for no rain, and then, when it comes to uh, the other sort of when it comes to praying for rain, um, you see it was that that uh, picture of up on the mountain uh, there 's the story uh, Elijah on the mountain with the altar, and the prophets of Baal and their altar and 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 they called upon their God it's sort of that was set up as a competition, you know the one who whose God comes and uh, takes up the sacrifice, brings fire into the sacrifice, well that God's the true God and, and, and Israel was gathered there and the, Baal, the prophets of Baal are dancing around and doing their thing to try and get Baal to, make, to take the sacrifice. And then Elijah prays and fire comes down and consumes the whole thing. And, and you know what the people say at that point? They say, yes, the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, He's the true God not Baal, we've just seen it and they seize the prophets of Baal and put them to death and get rid of that and you know what is the next thing that Elijah says? Well, he says to Ahab, you know, you better get going home now, otherwise your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud. Rain's coming, rain's coming as the people turn back in a sense. With that, as the context for Elijah's prayer and and what's going on for him. Can we see how that might link in or fit with the context of the letter of James a little more clearly? What's James doing? He's calling back God's rebellious people. He's calling them back, those who are wandering from the truth. Calling them to repent and receive the word humbly. That's the context of what's going on. You see those parallels, that similarity. Now, having seen that similar context, there's also a a similar, I think, uh, nature of the presence of suffering. So what was the the drought? What was the no rain in Israel about? Well, it was in order that the nation might repent. They might see the error of their ways. It's kind of part of God's way that He dealt with Old Testament Israel. He disciplined them. But, and likewise back here in James i think we can make the most sense of the passage and its context here to actually see that the sickness that James is particularly addressing at this point when he said is any of you sick is relating to is sickness relating to their sin and the disunity among the people of god okay it's, it's not normal that we make that connection or point that connection out or note it particularly. But that, that sickness or other suffering that we experience can be a direct expression of the Lord's discipline on us for particular sin. I think that's what this passage is pointing to here and we'll talk about that a little bit more. It's not a blanket conclusion that anyone you see sick or suffering is going through this. Uh, but there's there's examples and there's examples for and uh, and examples for not in that sense. Um, both, uh, if you look into the Old Testament, you've got the way that God brought affliction on Israel when they disobeyed Him. Uh, but then, of course, the alternative example of 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 Job, uh, who was a righteous man, and and his friends were trying to convince him, no, 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 you've done something wrong for all these things to happen to you, uh, but he was shown right in the end. In the New Testament as well, there's a number of times. Uh, one, one particular time that comes to mind is when Jesus and the disciples go and walk up to a blind man and, they, and the disciples say to him, Lord, is this was, uh, did this man's sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, neither. It's not sickness relating directly to sin. But then uh, over in 1 Corinthians 11 we read something that I think's worth us looking at briefly because of what's going on among the church there. Uh turn to 1 Corinthians or maybe put your hand in James and or and just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. So at this point in the letter Paul's, he's speaking to the Corinthian church about their behavior when they come together to eat the Lord's Supper and, it, and it's, it's unruly, they're divided, they're acting selfishly without thought of one another and, and despising and humiliating others as some come and, and are gluttonous and get drunk and others come and don't have food. And he picks it up uh, here, uh, let's pick it up at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. We are judged by, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Can you see what's happening here in Corinthians? The believers were, were sinning against one another, creating divisions and disunity, and they were bringing judgment on themselves. Verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and, and sick and some have died, Paul says. The suffering that they're experiencing, the sickness they're experiencing is direct discipline from the Lord in relation to their sin. Okay, are you with me so far? That it's not always the case, but there can be a link, a direct link between sin and sickness. Now, with that in our minds, come back to James chapter 5 and let's have a little a bit more closer look thinking about what James has just been doing in his letter, how he's been calling, uh, calling people to repent, from, to turn away from their sin uh, with their tongue, uh, with, their, with grumbling, with greed, uh, and the way that that affects the believers, he says, is any of you sick? And he asks them about it. He doesn't say kind of when you're sick, do this, but he says, is any of you sick? And what does he say? Let them call for the elders and come and pray over them. What's the point of the elders coming here? Well, they're coming for this person, for their sin to be confessed, for the restoration of relationship. What's the significance of the elders? Well, it's the the representation of the, the body of Christ, the believers, the church. It's about reconciliation forgiveness that's being that's being given that's why the elders are called in but it's not just that it's verse 16 as well as we continue on therefore confess your sins and pray for each other so that you may be healed the connection of sin and conf- confession of sin and healing likewise we can't we don't see the, the Greek word in the background here in verse 15. But I think it's significant that James uses the word for save here. So where it says make the sick person well, um, the word save can mean that, can mean make the sick person well. Uh, but I think it's significant that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick will save the sick person. And then in verse 16, confess your sins that you might be healed. Like I think that's strengthening that connection between sin and sickness uh, at this point it's sin as a sickness as a result of their sin that I think James is particularly talking about here and that also dovetails with down in verse 19 and 20 this aspect of the reconciliation of believers seeking those out who have wandered from the truth and bring them back Whoever turns a sinner from their way, the error of their way, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think that deals with the context and the passage where it is. But where does all this leave us? What's the conclusion? What implications does it have for for us here and now? Well, firstly, with all of the confusion of just exactly what's going on here, I think we don't want to miss the exhortation to pray. Uh, we saw James encouraging us to pray, pray for wisdom back at the beginning of James and that indeed the wisdom from God leads to humility before God. And so pray, pray, are you, are you suffering? Are things hard? Pray. Are you keeping up your courage? Are you cheerful in, the, in your perseverance? Well then praise God. Don't neglect to turn to thank God when things are going well rather than just turning to Him when things aren't well. Uh, Are you unwell? Are you sick? Pray. Prayer is the means that God gives us to take hold of the blessings that we have as His children. And so let us be people who are daily, humbly, continually praying, depending upon Him. But secondly, I think we need to hear the warning here about God's discipline. God does discipline His children. I think many of us would, you know, know and agree, well, of course, you know, being a Christian, everything's not going to be easy. But I think often we don't consider that part of the sickness and suffering we face could well be God disciplining us as His children. For parents, we we, we discipline our children, don't we? we? We train them. Uh, in that kind of ongoing sense, but we also discipline them in response to specific sin. And Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So I think one of the implications is for us, when we face sickness and suffering, to use that as a prompt to consider the sin in our lives. Is the Lord disciplining me here for some sin? Maybe you could ask a brother or sister in Christ who you know well about that. We don't want to go to the point of obsession, but just as is right for us always to be thinking, how of, how, how does how is God's Word convicting me? Where is God showing me that I need to repent? And is some circumstance of, say, sickness or suffering in your life actually alerting you to that all the more as well? Two other things: confession. Uh, we confess our our sinfulness generally with a with a general confession uh, here in church. But who do you speak to specifically about your sin? Do you speak to people personally when you sin against them? It doesn't have to be kind of the the big you know murder or something. Oh well, then I'll kind of confess my sin. But but when we sin, when we are unkind or when we make fun of others, when we neglect others, when we decide not to invite someone or when we harbour envy against others? Do we seek forgiveness? I think forgiveness in relationships is such a wonderful thing that God enables us to do in Jesus. But we can often avoid exposing ourselves like that because it's just kind of too awkward or personal. The wisdom that leads to humility will lead us to admit where we've done wrong, admit our failings to one another and and seek forgiveness. And the last thing here, restoring a wanderer. I'm not talking about uh, the the soccer Western Sydney wanderers, um, but someone who's wandering from the truth. What's that going to involve? Well, it's got to involve telling someone that you think they're going the wrong way. And I think we don't tend to like doing that very much In as just Western individual Christians. But... Would you be, is there someone, sorry, if you were wandering from the truth, would you want someone to speak to you, to help you to realise and to call you back? I certainly would. I'd need to pray that in fact I would be willing to receive it, to hear it. But is there someone that you would do that for? Can you see that you might want someone to do that for you? Are you going to be willing to do that for someone? To speak into that awkward moment, to to walk towards that awkward moment and take it up rather than avoid it. Because that's one of the things that we can do and need to be doing as God's people, encouraging one another as we keep pressing on to the end we pray that we do that please pray with me heavenly father we thank you for your word to us tonight we thank you that you are a lord who is good that you are a lord who uh, is our father our father who does discipline us we ask father that you might continue to humble us to see how uh, to see where your word or your spirit convicts us of sin to repent of that to humbly receive your word and so act on it and Father, we ask that in these ways we might confess when we need to confess and that you might give us courage. Courage to take those awkward moments when we need to, to either confess and seek forgiveness or to encourage someone to call them back from their wandering. And we pray that this might be in us, This might you might be doing this among us so that we might stand firm on that last day when you come. We pray it for your glory. Amen.